Good morning, and welcome to the Vineyard. We're, we're super happy that you're here. Um, in week two of this series, Missional Hospitality. So we're taking a look at um, one of the core central practices that made the early church um, really what it was. It, it was the reason that the message of Jesus spread so quickly uh, across the world two millennia ago. Um, and I want to be really clear about one thing as we start in today talking about missional hospitality. This isn't a series about evangelism. I think, I think as we started to talk about this, you know, some of you were like, oh, you know, I don't know about that. Like that's, you know, that's stuff that I don't really like or that's not my gifting or that's not whatever, right? This isn't really even a series about sharing your faith. Although that's something that we want to do, that's, that's not necessarily the primary focus of what we're talking about in this series. It's not about a coordinated effort to get more butts in the seats at the vineyard. It's not about, you know, seeing the bottom line of our budget change. It's not about any of those things. What it's really about, what we're talking about is, this is a series about how we think about the love of God coming into the world around us, and what it means for us to partner with the Spirit of God to lift people up into the love of God. This is a series where we're thinking about what does it mean for the love of God, for the kingdom of God, to come into the world around us, and how do we partner with the Spirit to lift people up into the love of God? Because... Ultimately, that's our goal here. It's not to evangelize people. It's not to make converts. Those things will happen as we, as we push into understanding the love of God for the people around us. There's a real sense in which we kind of resist um, other people in our lives. And so today, what we want to talk about is growing in compassion. And this is a theme that's been coming up recently in a lot of our preaching. This is the driving theme of this series and I can promise you that it's going to continue to come up in the life of our church because we really feel strongly that this isn't just, you know, a, a fun thing for this moment. This is something that God's doing in us as a church family to kind of embrace this as a way of living. And so we're just going to keep, we're going to keep returning to this as a theme over and over and over again, like probably for years. You can just hold that as a promise from, from our leaders that we're just going to keep looking at this every once in a while. And when you start to think like, Man, it's, it's maybe been a little bit since we've talked about compassion and hospitality and loving the people around us. That's probably a good sign that we're about to do a series on it again, okay? So for, there's, two, there's two facets to this struggle that we have with being close to people. First, we, we struggle as Christians to live in community with other Christians. You know, that's a very real struggle that I don't want to uh, put on the shelf. I don't want to dismiss that. And I know that that's on a lot of your minds is just the truth that, hey, you know, as we talk about inviting people into our homes and being wel a welcoming presence in our city, like I'm struggling with the people in this church. And I hear you. So am I. No, I love you guys. You're awesome. I love our church. But, but really, you know, community in the truest sense is like allowing our lives to sort of like bump up against other people a little bit. And we really avoid living in the kind of community where other people can apply a little bit of resistance to our lives. You know, like 
My friend Jared, in his new book, Finding Freedom and Constraint, he makes this, this point that I thought was funny to think about. You know, just take out another mortgage to redo the bathroom. I don't need to talk to anybody about that. Or I'm just going to take a new job. I don't need to run that by anybody else in my life, maybe my wife. Or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is for you. You know, we make these major life decisions. We really don't bring other people in on it. And, and what I'm trying to say is that, you know, it's not about letting other people control you or getting in a place where you can be manipulated by other people, but it's healthy for us to be in community with other people and for other people to actually be able to see into our lives. So as followers of Jesus, we want to see into one another's lives because it gets us in a place where we can, we can address things head on that we disagree about. And, you know, God doesn't work on the fake you. Do you know that? That like if there's a version of ourselves that we sort of bring to bear in community and it's not really true about who we are, that's actually not the, the you that God wants to work on. And so if you kind of fake it with other people, you can pretty much count on the fact that there isn't going to be any transformation coming into your life because God really only wants to work on the real you. And so when we're in community with other people, what happens is we kind of get exposed and people start to see the real us. And if we're trying to maintain a facade, we're trying to maintain a false self before other people, the false self gets exposed when we start to come in community with others. So that's, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about community with other Christians. But I actually want to talk about something else with most of our time today. It's even harder to share vulnerably with, with people about the secret things that are going on deep inside of us when, when maybe we have like major fundamental disagreements with them. They might not even be following Jesus. They might be our neighbor, you know, our, our, our scary pagan neighbors across the street or whatever, you know, the people that decorated for Halloween. Look out. Um, and I'm so inspired. I have, I have some friends right now who are in difficult circumstances. And I'm so, and they're not following Jesus. They have hard things going on in their lives. And they found out like a little bit about who I am and a little bit about how I kind of posture myself in life. I'm so impressed by the way that they've just openly held these struggles with me in community. I'm so honored by that because, you know, what they've seen is that as they process and, and, and as they're working on these things in their lives, like they want real transformation. And so they've come to a place where they've just said, look, this is who I am. Like, this is what's happening in my life. This is like this horrible, ugly fight that I had with my wife or this thing that, you know, whatever, the police were called or the, all, all of the above, Right. We struggle to include people in our lives who aren't on the same trajectory that we're on. And I think something that we just need to realize together as, as the people of God is that every person that we encounter has, has major obstacles in their lives to move. You know, for the last several weeks, we've talked about statistics about loneliness in America and about, you know, people whatever, in situations where they're thinking about taking their own lives, or people who don't have any close friends, or people who don't have life-giving relationships with their families. And um, there's a picture that I think really captures this well that I just want us to have in the back of our minds today. So why don't we go ahead and put that up. Here's our buddy, 
Um, this is this is all of us. This is all of us. I think about this often when it comes to the question of living in community with others in contrast to this popular idea that we build our own lives. Our friend here, for one reason or another, is moving a couch on a moped. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was thinking about moving a couch, I wouldn't get on my moped with it. I would probably think, who are some friends who have trucks or who could like help me lift the couch or maybe have some money and could help me hire a mover to move the couch or whatever it might be. And I just want you to consider the fact that our friend here took the couch, you know, probably carried it down from his third floor apartment and his neighbors are watching him as he tries to get it down the stairs you know, and turn the corner and do the whole, you know, whatever, the thing from, from friends and like, and, and then he gets it down and they see him loading it up on his moped and people are having these thoughts like, this idiot, you know, they're or like, man, I feel so bad for him. He must really be having a hard time moving this couch by himself or, you know, any number of things, right? Well, why doesn't that guy just ask for help? And I just want to propose to you that kind of as a, as a theme, like, idea behind everything that we say today is that like all of us and everyone that we encounter in life kind of has a couch to move and we see our neighbors every day moving couches on a moped when they're doing life out of community when they're doing life without the life-giving love of God as a sustaining force in their relationships and in their work. Is this making sense? Okay. We have this fear of being known by others. We're callous, we're apathetic toward people around us who hold different views about politics, about culture. We have a tendency to present this false self to the world so that people don't really know who we are. You know, sociologists have long established that community, healthy community, and life-giving relationships with other people are vital for our survival as human beings. These things aren't accessory to our lives. This isn't like, you know, make sure that I have a place to live and enough money, and then maybe if I have time, I'll make some good friends. It's crucial for our survival that we have people who are close to us that we can share our lives with. And this is true of your neighbors who are lonely. This is true of people who you see and think, I don't think I could ever be friends with that kind of a person. Or we just cringe, you know, when we, when we hear stories about, you know, whatever. I mean, I'll just be transparent here. Like uh, a couple of weeks ago or, or last week, John challenged us to think about, you know, who are some people, or maybe it was Josh, I don't know. Who are some people? If you saw your pastor hanging out with them, you might, you might cringe. You might think, ooh, you know, like, like Jesus hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees go, this guy, what's he doing? And I, can I just tell you about a time, I actually had a moment like that recently where this judgment just instantly formed in my heart. I was with a close friend of mine who I really admire. Great, you know, he's a pastor, he's doing ministry, he's whatever, and he had gone to, we were staying at his house and he had gone to this dinner and we were kind of doing our own thing for the day. We came back together in the evening to hang out. And um, he was telling us about this dinner and there were some like really important influential people at the dinner. And he was really excited to have met one of them. 
and, and he was telling me all about this guy and this conversation that he had with him. He's, he's in state-level politics. And as he's telling me the story, I just immediately like formed this judgment in my heart. Like, dude, I can't believe that you were excited to meet that guy. Like, what a loser. Honestly, that's just really what went through my mind. I was like, are you serious? That guy? And then I remembered this. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's that thing that we all do, isn't it? And so I would just encourage you, whoever that is in, in your mind, you know, let that, let that thought come. Let that person come to mind. Who is that for you? Because that's what we're trying to address head on as we talk about this stuff, is having our hearts transformed by the love of God so that we would be able to see people the way that God sees them, whether they're high and lofty or they're in the gutter. Because this is about the way that we're thinking that the kingdom of God comes into the world. And, and you know, the way that the kingdom comes into the world, it's not about, there's, there's this thing that, that happens. It's, it's really not about, like, rightism, like being right all the time. You know, that stinks. That stinks in our nose. That stinks in everybody else's nose. This idea that following Jesus is about being right about politics. It's about being right about theology. It's about being right about this social thing or that social thing. And so when we carry ourselves in the community as people who are just, you know, hey, we're, we're right. And that's like the main way that people know who we are. That erodes our ability to bring the kingdom of God to people. Do you know that? And so, you know, in my mind, like when I notice that moment of rightism, when my person, you know, when, when my, my friend meets this, this person, this politician, and, and we have this exchange, and I'm thinking, I know I'm right about this. Like, I know my judgment about this guy is right. And the things that he's done, and the policies that he's supported, and the whatever, you know, that, that was it. Like, my, my kingdom way of thinking was just out the window immediately in that instant. And I believe that, you know, we are, we're, we're losing people who have in their mouth the love of God and the grace of God speaking the truth of God. They're missing the heart of what God's about. And my longing, my deep longing for this community of believers, for Oxford Vineyard, is that we would be people who walk around in this city and we have the love of God in our mouths and we have the, we have the grace of God on our lives. We're speaking the truth of God and we know the heart of God for his world and that would be our starting place. And like these little things that we kind of tack onto that, that they wouldn't steal from our ability to lift people up into the love of God. That's a little bit longer intro than I wanted, but let's, I want to, this morning we're going to look at a, a, a passage that's going to be familiar to a lot of us. Um, I think it's probably relevant to the situation that we're in as a community and some of the things that I think God's doing in us. It's going to be a little bit longer story, but you probably already know it. So we're in Luke 10, 25 to 37, if you'd like to read along. And this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus is talking to an expert in the law. An expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to vindicate himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and took off, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came upon him, and when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, treating them with oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now just a show of hands, who has heard this story before? Yeah. This morning, I want to I turn it on its head a little bit. I want to think about it a little bit differently than maybe we have before. So there are a few theologians, one in particular, a Lutheran theologian named Robert Jensen, who I've come to really appreciate in recent years. They propose a slightly different reading of this parable. And, and I want to suggest to you that there is another role in the story that we have the opportunity to faithfully live into. So the clear answer to Jesus' question at the end of the parable is, you know, who, who was a neighbor to this man? The Samaritan, right? And so when we think about this parable, and Jesus even says, go and do likewise, who are we to emulate? The Samaritan, Jesus, right? Yes. So is there a risen Lord? Yes. What is he like? He's good. He's like the Samaritan. And, you know, of course, we are to go and do likewise and emulate the Samaritan. But I just want to suggest something to you. You know, when we read the Bible, we have a tendency, because we're a little bit full of ourselves, to want to play the hero. So when you read the Bible, and there's a clear protagonist, in the story, we often want to kind of insert ourselves into that place of the protagonist, don't we? When we see somebody do something good, and Jesus even says himself, go and do likewise. So Jesus is encouraging us to be like the protagonist in this story. But there's something that's true about the whole Bible from beginning to end, is that the Bible is a story about Jesus. It's fundamentally a story about Jesus. And who is the hero of Jesus' story? Jesus. <laughs> and so any time there's a hero in a Bible story that we read, the first place that our minds should go is 
Jesus, not me, right? We want to do good things, okay? We want to be like the heroic examples that we see in the scriptures. We want to be like Jesus. But when there's a hero in the scriptures, I want to suggest to you that Jesus is always the hero of his own story. And so when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, of course we're supposed to be like the Good Samaritan, but ultimately Jesus is the Good Samaritan of our story. Isn't that right? Yeah, because you didn't find yourself beaten and robbed and stripped on the side of the road and pick yourself up and take yourself to the inn and fix yourself up, did you? Jesus did. And there's someone else in the story that we often kind of read over, like they're not really that important of a part of the story. And I want to suggest to you that you and I are meant to be a lot like them. And that's the innkeeper. And so while we're talking about missional hospitality today, I want to just bring to the forefront of our minds the part that the innkeeper has to play in the story of the Good Samaritan. The innkeeper plays a pivotal role. He's present to the wounded man that the Samaritan brings in and leaves with him. And, and really what we ultimately see is the one who's practicing missional hospitality in this story is the innkeeper. You know, there are so many layers to this, but at, at some point you start to see that, look, this guy is dumped off on the innkeeper who's trying to run a business and the Samaritan takes care of this guy for a little while, and he, and he gives the innkeeper some money, and he basically tells him right up front, hey, this isn't going to be everything you need to take care of this guy. But I expect you to, to go ahead and do it, and then when I come back around, I'll compensate you for whatever it costs you. I can remember a particular time when a friend reached out to Josh and I in a really desperate moment in his life. He was in a really dark place, having suicidal ideations, and we sat with this guy for hours, hours and hours, and we talked and we prayed and we talked in circles. I mean, it was just this, you know, when somebody's in a really dark place psychologically, it's kind of what happens is that you just get into this like cyclical, circular kind of conversation. And, and we just sat with him in that. We were there and present in that, and I believe the presence of God was with us in that. And it was, it, it's this, this kind of moment and, and he, he made it out on the other side, and he's, and he's okay, and he's still our friend, and still a part of our lives. But there's this moment where the, the opportunity that we have to bring our presence into people's lives, because we carry the Spirit of God inside of us, is actually really powerful and transformative. I have an acquaintance, he's a, kind of a friend of a friend who lives in Columbus, and he serves as a hospice chaplain. And, and that's what he does with his whole life, day in and day out. He sits with people who are dying. And he, and he speaks to them, and he speaks to their families, and he, he sees them off from, from this moment into the next one. And there are folks in this room who know that, that particular thing, and people who are in this church who know that particular thing well. You know, Darren does this work as a chaplain, and, and, and our friend Beth Goins, and and Krista Hitchcock, they, they are chop, chaplains in hospitals. The ministry of presence that they carry is really something that we all have the opportunity to carry into our day-to-day -day lives, even if it's just with a neighbor or two. Not, maybe not with a whole hospital full of people or person after person who are dying day after day. The thing that the innkeeper does is he's, he's present and available for his profession of hospitality. 
And I want to suggest that I think Oxford Vineyard specifically as a church, I think we're called into a profession of hospitality. I think that's a thing that's going to be transformational for our city and for our culture in this moment if we embrace this work of being innkeepers in the city of Oxford. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I'm going to talk about this at the end, but you know, my, my dream, my hope that I hope we would share is that this church could be something like an inn. That each of our individual homes could be something like the inn in the story of the Good Samaritan. That each one of us individually could shoulder this work because Jesus said that the burden is light, yeah, of being an innkeeper because that's the work that he's inviting us into. That's the love of God. Hospitality is the love of God. That's your father. That's how he is toward your friends, toward your cousins, toward your, you know, the weirdos across the street. That's how God feels about them. And so I think that thinking of the church as an inn where people are to be cared for until Jesus returns is a powerful picture. Because Jesus tells a number of parables that involve um, entrusting the care of something to people and then the master leaves expecting them to do well with it and then returns expecting to find them to have stewarded it well. And I actually think that that might be what this parable is about. It's about doing that with your neighbors. God has an expectation and, and, and hear me, you can do it. You can do it. This isn't, this isn't heavy. This isn't a heavy burden. This isn't a heavy load for you to carry. You can do it. Like God is giving us everything that we need to do this. And so what I don't want is for this heaviness to settle on the room because, oh, how am I ever going to do this? I believe in you. I, I'm not saying that to be corny. I'm saying that like I really do. When I, when I think about the relationships that I have with the people in this room, the ways that I've seen you be generous to me, the ways that I've seen you be generous to other people in this city, you can do it. You have everything on your life that you need to walk in this work of missional hospitality and being generous to the people around you. And I just want to draw in one other quick thing that I think might help us imagine this kind of life for ourselves. There's a wonderful story toward the end of the book of Acts. So if you're reading your Bible, we got the Gospels, the story of Jesus. He sends his followers out. And then the book of Acts is just them taking this message into the world for 28 chapters. And toward the end of Acts in chapter 25 and 26, Paul, this great preacher and missionary, um, he's nearing the end of his career. He's nearing the end of his life. And he's been put in prison in Rome for the first of two times. He'll be in prison twice. He'll get out and he'll go back. And he's been in prison for a while, and he, he's brought out to appear before the regional governor, Agrippa. So there's a guy uh, named Festus, and he's the one that's got Festus. What a nasty name. And he, Sorry if you know anybody named Festus. And he's got Paul in prison, and then like he, he brings him out to Agrippa. These guys just sound like villains, don't they? He brings him out to Agrippa, and he, and he is asked to share openly before Agrippa. Agrippa says, speak openly to me, Paul. Tell me your story. Why are you in prison? And so Paul starts to share. He tells the story of his life and his ministry and how the love of God transformed him 
from the kind of person who used to travel the world and kill people to the kind of person who writes about gentleness. And then Agrippa stops him and he says, hold on a minute, Paul. Do you think that, you, that, that in such a short time, you can make me a Christian? So he stops him and he says, Paul, I see what you're doing. I see the story that you're telling, the web that you're spinning. I get it. You're trying to convert me. And I love Paul's response so much. Paul's response to Agrippa is something that has just been like giving me life for the last number of weeks. I heard a friend preach on this passage recently and I just, I had to bring it in because I was like, this is the kind of life, this is the kind of people we're supposed to be. He says, are you so quickly persuading me to become a Christian? And Paul replies, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today might become such as I am, except for these chains, right? Because he's a prisoner. Listen to his response. Short time or long. You know, we talk about this when we talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit when we gather here together. That God's doing fast things in our lives where he breaks in in an instant and transforms us. And then there's a long work of the Holy Spirit that's unfolding across the course of our entire lives that God has set up for us to live in. And Paul gets that. And when Agrippa says, are you trying to convert me? He doesn't say yes, and he doesn't say no. He says, short time or long, I think God's doing something in your life. And I think eventually, it's not just going to matter to you, but it's going to matter to all the people who hear us talking. Because there's a great court of important people assembled. That's part of this story is that there's all these important people. And one of my favorite things about this story is that many of the nobilities and the politicians and the governors and the important people who are in that room, do you know what history remembers about them? We're not really sure what their life looked like before or after this moment, but we do know that for a short time, they were in Paul's presence. These were the most important people of their day, and Paul was a prisoner. And what history remembers of them is that for a short time, they were with Paul. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that powerful when we look at our neighbors, you know, and, and we get scared because they seem happy. And we know that they don't have a relationship with Jesus. We know that they don't have, you know, but, but they seem happy. That's a Christian's worst nightmare is their happy, unbelieving neighbor. Who am I to ruin their life with this message of the cross? right? But short time or long, as they watch the faithfulness of your life unfold in your love for Jesus and the love that God has poured out on you, if you let them in to see how it has transformed you, short time or long, that will impact them. And history may just remember your important neighbor for the fact that one time they were in your presence. That's not a self-centered thought. That's a thought to say the love of God that we carry is so powerful to overcome any and everything that that, that becomes the story. That becomes the story of your life and mine in, in the long run. And the last thing I want to just quickly comment on is this thing that, that the Samaritan says to the innkeeper as he departs. I will repay you 
whatever more you spend. This is costly work. It just is. It's really hard. And, and I think God's going to give us everything that we need to do it, but it's also really hard. And we kind of have to hold both of those things together in tension. I'm not one to stand up here and lie and say, oh, this will be so easy and you'll just be floating on a cloud and the grace of God is going to carry you. You know, this costs us. And the fact that God is calling us to become more like him is going to cost us everything that we treasure that's wrapped up in the way the world works. Hear that. It's not going to cost you everything you treasure. It's going to cost you everything you treasure that's wrapped up in the way the world works. Because there's a particular way that people lie and steal and cheat, take advantage of each other and oppress each other. And all the things in our world that are wrapped up in that, in keeping that going, it's going to cost you everything in your life that touches that system, that way of being. There's another way of being, the kingdom of God, that you and I are actually wired for. We're wired to love. And it's not going to cost us our passions there. God's put things inside of you that you love. And, you know, we hear this masochistic thing in church all the time about how, oh, you know, you got to, whatever, give away all your, you know, your CD collection and your whatever it might be. You know, it's going to cost you this hobby that you have. You're not going to build model airplanes anymore because the kingdom of God's going to get, you know, no, it's not really about that. What it's really about is like where we've invested deeply in the way that the world takes advantage of and exploits people and advances the kingdom of darkness. That's what it's going to cost us. We're invited to become people who are more and more like God in knowing him. You know, when we talk about this spiritual formation stuff and the talk that I brought about three weeks ago, all of that is unto becoming more like Jesus and then being able to move and respond in the world the way that Jesus does. God has put particular people in your path for specific reasons. And sometimes doing missional hospitality might even look like divesting from more superficial Christian community. There, there are certain things in our lives where you know, we're, we're with other believers and we do this thing and we do that thing and we go to this Bible study and we, you know, but I would, I would dare to suggest that the list of Christian activities that you give yourself to where the love and the life of God are flowing through those things into your life is actually relatively short. And I think sometimes the invitation from God is to divest from some of that surface level Christian community in order to go deep with our neighbors who don't know the love of Jesus. So I want to close with this. I, I felt like I was missing something this morning when I woke up, and so I was like, what is it? What is the thing? And John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, wrote several wonderful books, Power Evangelism and Power Healing. And then there was a third book um, on his contract with the publisher that he kind of had to write. And, and I'm not sure if it was like super inspired in the moment, but it's actually become my favorite. And so it's called PowerPoints. Um, this is before Microsoft Office, you know. And so he wrote this book called PowerPoints, which is basically just a collection of like ideas. And there's, there, it's, like a, it's like a bunch of short little essays about different things in our life with God. And I want to just read 
the last little thing from one of these chapters to you this morning, um, you know, from, from the founder of our movement, from the guy who started this thing that we're a part of here in the vineyard. And so here's what he says. He says, from time to time, the Lord challenges us to make new commitments. He lets us know that he wants, to, he wants us to give up something we are successful at and begin doing something we do not yet know anything about. Maybe something we do not even like. The simple fact of the matter is that the Lord has the right to call us to make any changes and sacrifices he wants, since he's purchased us with the price of his own blood. But when he exercises that right, we often go into a tailspin. Who does he think he is? We protest. I've just got my life where I want it. I'm just going to take it in the direction I want it to go. And now he's telling me I have to do something different. What do we do? Do we back off, take a vacation from obedience and sacrifice and do our own thing? Or do we try to hang on to Jesus while brushing away the cross? Or do we say yes to Jesus and no to our desires and release the power of God in our lives? The economy of the kingdom of God is quite simple. Every new step in the kingdom costs us everything we've gained to date. Every time we come across a new threshold, it costs us everything we now have. Every new step may cost us all the reputation and security that we've accumulated up to that point. It costs us our life. A disciple is always ready to take the next step. If there's anything that characterizes Christian ministry, it is the willingness to become a beginner again for Jesus Christ. I love that line. It's the willingness to put our hand in his hand and say, I'm scared to death, but I'll go with you. You are the pearl of great price. I love those words from Wimber because what it reminds me of is the fact that when I do missional hospitality, when I try to extend and invite people into my life, into more of my life, I feel like a beginner. Like I don't really know what I'm doing. And I think to myself, like, what does this look like to make friends in a way that's, like, intentional? To seek out my, you know, my older single neighbor who's lonely and doesn't appear to have a whole lot going on in his life. You know, what does it look like for me to, like, speak to my neighbor who waters the plants in her underwear regularly? And as like, you know, just what's going on there? Like what, you know, it's weird, right? But there's an invitation from Jesus to like reposition myself a little bit and go, okay, I feel like a beginner. This is awkward. This is uncomfortable. I'm not even sure how to approach this person. But I know that like I have a lot to give because Jesus put it in there. So we're going to close uh, by taking communion together. So I would love to invite the worship team up. First Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Communion 
reminds us that Jesus' death makes it possible for us to be born again into a life that can never be destroyed or taken away. We take communion in remembrance of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his victory. And when we do this, we're held together with all the people of God through all of time. The Passover, the Last Supper, the meals that the risen Jesus shared with his disciples, and the wedding supper of the Lamb that's to come is found in this meal that we share together. The scriptures say, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So during this first song, you're welcome to come up and receive the elements. We do this by intention, so dipping the cracker into the juice. And this is an open table, so all who have given their lives to follow Jesus are welcome to join us in this. We're going to have prayer teams in the back throughout worship. I'll be back there. We'd love to pray for you. If you have anything in your life that you'd like prayer for, uh, if you need healing physically, spiritually, emotionally, uh, maybe you just need an encouraging word from God, we're there to pray for you. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, if you're, if you're here and you're in the room and you see the picture of the guy moving the couch on his moped and you go, I think that's me. And you've never made Jesus the Lord of your life. You've never said, Jesus, why don't, why don't you help me move the couch? Uh, we'd love to pray for you in the back. We'd love to, to lead you through a prayer to accept Jesus. So uh, why, don't, why don't you stand if you're able? and we'll worship together.